Welcome to Lessons from History. In the last few months, the government has announced plans to replace England's A-level system with a new continental-style baccalaureate called the Advanced British Standard. If it goes ahead as planned, it will be one of the biggest changes ever to the exam system in England. A-levels have been around for over 70 years, so very few people living today have any memory of studying, let alone teaching, their predecessor. In this podcast, we're going to explore what we did before A-levels. But before we get on to that, Daisy, I wondered whether now would be a good time, given that we have a growing international listenership, hello, thank you for listening, to talk about the fact that we're talking about replacing England's A-level exam system with an advanced British standard. And the fact that we do have this slightly sort of confusing, devolved system of education here in the component parts of the United Kingdom. Yes, you're absolutely right, Lizzie. So this new plan, which was announced by the the UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is to replace A-levels with something called an advanced British standard. It's a little bit misleading, calling it the advanced British standard, because, as you point out, education is different in the four countries of of the United Kingdom. So England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland have different education systems, different powers there to change education, run exams. So this qualification, the Advanced British Standard, will actually only apply to England. <laughs> um, but I think it's being called the Advanced British Standard because the the, the term English Baccalaureate is already taken for something else. <laughs> so I think maybe they just concluded maybe for, for, for PR, for advertising, maybe it sounds the best. But yeah, it's the Advanced British Standard, but it'll only be taken in England. And so what did we do before A-levels? It's a very good question. So as I said, as you said in the intro... A-levels have been around for over 70 years. They're first taken in 1951. Um, That's a a very long time ago. (laughs) And the qualification before then was called the highest certificate. So at the moment, A-levels are taken by 18-year-olds in in England and in many other countries. Um, So A-levels, you know, they are a bit of an international brand. Uh, Before A-levels exist, the 18-year-old or 19-year-old exam that's taken by, by students at that point is called the highest certificate and it's linked to the 16 year old exam currently 16 year olds in England at the moment do GCSEs they used to do O levels and before they did O levels they did something called the school certificate so what we're looking at today the period in time we're looking at is the period between 1918 and 1951 um, and that relatively short period is where 16 year olds 15 16 year olds are doing the school certificate and 18-year-olds are doing the highest certificate. So if you want to put that in terms of when people were born, then it's people born between 1900 and 1931. That's the cohort of people who are sitting these school certificates and higher certificates. Obviously, it isn't that entire cohort, because unlike today, uh, the, the vast majority of, of students are not taking either of these exams, either the 16-year-old or the 18-year-old. Most, most people are leaving school before 16 at this point. But if you are thinking of your own family, um, then it would be people born between 1900 and 1931. If they they did go to university or stay on at school, this is what they would have done. They'd have done the school certificate at 16 and the higher at 18. And in terms of cultural reference points, I can sort of vaguely remember reading Enid Blyton's and they'd sometimes talk about the school certificate. Maybe it pops up in like the Rich Bell Crompton, the Just Williams stories or, uh, you know, some of those interwar detective novels. So that's the kind of the era we're thinking about here. And the high school certificate would have been intended for people who wanted to go on to university, presumably, a bit like A-levels, largely as a university admission measure. Yes, it, it would have been for university admission. There was some debate when it was founded as to exactly what its purpose should be. 
should it be so there's, there's almost sort of three maybe maybe three competing purposes one is there will be students who leave school at 18 and would just like some certificate of what they've done another is for basic university admission but another purpose is also for scholarship if you want to get a scholarship at university so even though a much smaller proportion of students are taking it then than are taking a levels now there's still a debate about can this one exam actually cover off these these purposes and actually, I think it did. And, and as I say, we're, we're not talking about a huge proportion of students who are seeing it. So it probably did manage to, to do all of those uh, purposes. If we're just thinking about some of the people who took it, um, I said it's people born between 1900 and 1931. Maybe one of the most significant people to take it was Alan Turing. Um, and Sherbourne School have his higher school certificate on their website. So you can oh, see. Wow. That, yeah, you can see on their website, uh, Sherbourne, which is Alan Turing, the famous mathematician, Bletchley Park cryptographer. Uh, he he took the high school, sir, as would people of his age have done. So I, I imagine a lot of the people who would have worked with him uh, at Bletchley Park on, on that would have would have done the higher the higher certificate. Yeah, so that's the, the kind of era that we're, we're talking about. And he did his in, uh, let me get this right, yeah, he did he did his in, in maths, uh, as you might expect, and also physics and chemistry. And so we have his, his answers, not just the questions. No, no, he... just, I, th- I think just the certificate. So if you look on, on Sherman's website, they've got a copy of his certificate. Oh, of course, the literal certificate. Yes. OK, Absolutely. so often I kind of overlook that bit of it. The piece of physical piece of paper to prove That's that right. you've got that qualification is pretty important, yeah. actually. You can see, yeah, you know few people from that era the schools might still have some certificates that they were issued with at that at that time and so it's interesting then to think about I, I said Turing did maths physics chemistry it's interesting to think about the subjects that, that people were doing and comparing that to what choices you have today for this higher certificate it did fluctuate a bit you could do three you could do sort of three uh, main subjects and one subsidiary you could do two and two so you could do it you could do a mix or you could just do three main ones so it looks like what Turing had done had done three. Um, he'd done three subjects. I think it did vary a little bit depending on, on which board you did it with. But the, the particular exam board you chose or in practice that your school chose, they would set the possible combinations. So I think one of the big differences between this and the A-level is you, you don't just go, go in and get to pick whatever you want. You have to go with a set of combinations from the exam board. And the other big difference is you don't get to pick and choose from different exam boards. You, you, the exam board kind of set the subject you could do and you would have to pick one exam board and pick the combinations that, that they went with. And the other tricky thing about it, which causes complaints at the time and leads to people wanting reform, is that if you failed one of the subjects, you didn't get the certificate. Mm. So you had to pass all of them. And that's 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 quite hard for the highest certificate where you're doing three or four subjects, but it's even harder, it's a bigger deal with the school certificate at 16. So with the school certificate at 16, you have to do six subjects from different groups and you have to pass them all. So you could do brilliantly on five of the six, but if you fail one, you don't get the certificate. And as a result, a lot of students at 16 will end up doing seven subjects. So they've got a, you know, a, a bit of a buffer. They can fail one and still get the certificate. And that's kind of a problem. I think by the end of the time of the school certificate 30% of people who are failing the school certificate they're failing because they missed out in one subject so you can imagine with that that it's a bit demoralizing you've worked really hard you passed five subjects maybe got credit or distinction in five subjects that's the how it works credit it's a pass credit distinction system 
but you, you you fail one subject and you get no credit you don't get a certificate that's 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 kind of harsh yeah really really difficult really difficult especially if they are making you do that that full sweep then so you're you're not allowed to be too narrow at that um, 16 exam stage well this is where it's interesting so people often say the higher in school certificate enforced a bit more breadth I think the school certificate is 16 enforced a bit more breadth you had to do the six subjects as I say and they had to be from different groups but actually as I think you can see from the Turing example if you wanted to specialise 18 you could so I'm not sure in that sense actually if it was radically radically different from today's A-levels but sometimes it's talked about as, as as though it is and certainly your choices are more constrained I think with the school certificate than sorry with the higher certificate than with with A-levels yeah, there's still there's still a, a probably more freedom than you might think with the higher certificate. And presumably those groupings that you were talking about, those preordained groupings that you had to do for the higher school certificate would be quite conventional ones. So you couldn't sort of mix art and physics and French. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not totally sure. It's quite hard to kind of uh, work out. And as I say, this, this, this system was only around for about 30 years and there were different boards who ran it. Some of the aspects of it changed over time as, as well. But there was definitely nothing like the subject range you get today. And as I say, definitely not the picking and mixing from different exam boards. So I think the exam boards at this point is probably the high point of, of their power. They're essentially really setting the syllabus, setting the curriculum for a lot of schools, for a lot of students. And that's actually one of the reasons why there's some, some criticism, criticism of it. Um, and the A-level comes about. We've got a bit ahead of ourselves, I suppose. We should perhaps go back a little bit and talk about how and why the school certificate came about. So you're saying it came in 1918. So the first school certificate and higher are run in 1918, that's right. So towards the end of the First World War. I was going to say connected with the First World War. So actually the origins of it are in a 1911 government commission. So, so actually all of the decisions that are made around it date back to a bit before that and it just takes it a bit of time for it to be implemented. Where's the system in 1911? We've talked about this in a few previous episodes, but essentially by, by 1911, by the early 20th century, the system's a bit of a mess. There are all these different university-based exam boards and it's not clear that they're all equivalent. And we talked about this a bit when we talked about exams. We talked about the first public school exams for 16 and 18 year olds that were in 1858 or so, 1859, 60, by Oxford and Cambridge University. In the decades after, you get other universities who set up similar kinds of exam systems. And as I say, it's messy. It's very unclear if you can compare an exam that's set by the, the London University with one that's set by Durham, with one that's set by Oxford or Cambridge. And for students who are looking to go to university or even just looking to have something they can show to an employer, it's not very clear what they should be doing either. There's a risk that they might end up repeating lots of similar exams. There's rumours that there's unscrupulous schools who put their smart students in for lots of different exams <laughs> just to show how, how brilliant a school they are. Things are quite messy. And in 1911, the government have a commission to try and sort out some of the mess and try and standardise things a little bit more. So tell me more about this 1911 commission. Uh, there's 20 people on the commission. It, it is chaired by a man, but four of the people on the commission are women, which is pretty unusual for the time to have that many that many people on a government commission like this who are, who are female. It's a sign of growing female empowerment, I guess. And also probably that education 
perhaps has always been something where it's been a little bit easier for women to, to get involved with. So some very interesting women, uh, one called Frances Hermia Durham. She's a civil servant. She's the first woman to reach uh, the rank of assistant secretary in the civil service. And in the war, she does lots of work on organising women's services and what have you. So she's an interesting figure. But uh, one of the very interesting figures on this uh, on this commission set up to sort out some of these confusing aspects of assessment. Uh, one of the very interesting women is a woman called Sophie Bryant. I thought I might have a little tangent just saying a little bit about Sophie Bryant's life because she's got a fascinating life. And also, Lizzie, I think you'll be interested to hear. We talked in a previous episode about the head of North London Collegiate School, which is where you went to school. The, the first head of North London Collegiate School was uh, a famous woman called Frances Mary Buss. Yes. <laughs> well, Sophie Bryant is the second head teacher, uh, uh, headmistress, I should say, sorry, headmistress, the second headmistress of North London Collegiate School. Um, so have you heard of her before? Is she famous? Did you sing songs about her assemblies? Oh, definitely. She definitely had a verse <laughs> in the school song. And I think eagle-eared listeners might remember, I think we might have briefly mentioned her because one of the things I was saying about Frances Mary Buss that was so clever and forward-thinking about Frances Mary Buss was that she she did think about succession and, and legacy and making sure that the school would continue after she died. And part of that was kind of grooming Sophie Bryant to to take over from absolutely her. and succession planning is a huge issue and Lizzie I know you're not a huge football fan but people in football think about this it's the big Alex Ferguson problem so you know, Alex Ferguson maybe a lot in common with Francis Mary Bus. I don't think she threw any football boots at people <laughs> <laughs> you know you get these you get these legendary leaders who have been there for decades and absolutely dominate through sheer force of personality. And then you think, well, when they retire or die, what comes next? What do you do next? And Manchester United, they've had 10 years of what next, and no one's really cracked it. <laughs> but this is where, if you're making that comparison, Frances Mary Buss is doing a lot better than Alex Ferguson, because she, as you say, has got a hand-picked successor, Sophie Bryan, who did a lot better, I think we can say, than David Moyes. And I say that as a West Ham fan, I'm a David Moyes fan, but he obviously he didn't cover himself in glory when he took over from Alex Ferguson. All right, I will stop the tangent on the tangent. I'll stop talking about football. That's not what people want to hear. So who is Sophie Bryant? Yeah, can you refresh my memory on Sophie Bryant? I'm ashamed to say that I might not remember everything in full detail. She is born in 1850 in Ireland. She is a very talented mathematician. She's educated at home by her father, who's also a mathematician. Uh, she does move to London as uh, when she's a bit older, when her dad gets a job in London. It's still quite tricky then for women to study formally, but she is one of the first women to get a degree from the University of London. So the very first year that a British university awards degrees, she gets one. She gets split honours. She gets part of it in mental and moral sciences and part in mathematics. She's only the third woman to be elected to the London Mathematical Society, first woman to have something published in the proceedings of the London Mathematical Society. So very, very interesting career for the time, a real pioneer of female education. So you can absolutely see why Frances Mary Bass would have thought this would be a brilliant person to have teaching at North London Collegiate and someone who you would really like maybe to, to take over from her as she does. What's also interesting Obviously, we, we talked in that episode on Miss Bus and Miss Bill about how it's very hard for women at this time to be married and have children and also have a career. So what's interesting, Sophie Bryant, when she's 19, she marries a man, marries a surgeon 10 years older than her. So you think, actually, well, that means she can't really have a career. But he, he dies within a year of the marriage. He dies of cirrhosis. So sad for him, but perhaps good for the rest of us that Sophie was... She never marries again. Hmm. She doesn't marry again. 
So yeah, who knows? Who knows what happened there? It's hard to kind of kind of find out that. Um, but she is a widow. She cracks on with all this mathematical researches. She starts teaching at North London Collegiate. She also does all these other fascinating things. So she helps to set up what becomes the Institute of Education, which nowadays is you know, one of the flagship teacher training colleges in, in England. She sets up what's now Hughes Hall, Cambridge. She helps set that up. A bit like her, I guess, kind of her mentor, uh, Frances Mary Bus. She's involved. She's got fingers in lots of pies. She's involved in doing lots of uh, different different things. She retains a strong connection with Ireland, and she's also really into physical exercise. Apparently, she is the first, one of the first uh, women to own a bicycle. I don't know how you kind of prove that, <laughs> <laughs> but but she owned a bike, <laughs> um, and she was also this is where it gets interesting and also a little bit sad. She climbed the Matterhorn twice. Pretty impressive. Um, and that's quite a big deal. I mean, that's a big deal nowadays. But, you know, in the, the 19th century, a woman going off and climbing the Matterhorn, that's that's pretty significant. She's really big on, yeah, physical activity, the outdoors. She's always talking about the importance of kind of almost physical freedom. She gets involved in, as you might expect, gets involved in all the suffragette, the suffragist societies that are, that are popping up at the time. A very interesting figure. The climbing, though, doesn't work out brilliantly for her she dies while on a climbing holiday um in Chamonix so that's that's pretty sad this is in 1922 this is after she's retired as the head of North London Collegiate and what is remarkable she's 72 and she's 72 and she's off on her own on a climbing holiday she's one of these really remarkable women I think and it's a bit sad as well that that there's a little bit of a mystery surrounding her death that they don't find her body for two weeks Um, and they find it in a, in a in a valley. Yeah, Lizzie, I mean, we don't want to turn into a true crime podcast, but yeah, who, who who knows? Who knows what happened there? But maybe she she just tripped and fell. There's a suggestion, something, something, you know, there might have been some malicious intent there. Who knows? But as I say, a fascinating life, a really fascinating life. And she is the, the second head of the headmistress of the school that you went to. Yes, I, I definitely must look up her, her verse in the school song. Have you climbed the Matterhorn, Lizzie? I haven't climbed the Matterhorn and I'm just wondering if there are many rhymes for Matterhorn for the school song. It's a rather difficult word. Were you one of the first women to own a bicycle? <laughs> I can't claim that either. Do you ever feel like, you know, we're a fallen nation? <laughs> can't live up to the uh, the example of Sophie Bryant? No, no, no. definitely can't. <laughs> All right then, so... Anyway, Sophie Bryan is on this government commission. She's on this government commission. And the whole point of this government commission is to try and fix these issues with this very confusing exam landscape. They, they do other things too. It's not just that. But that's one of the major uh, things that lands in, in, in their lap that they have to try and fix. And what is really interesting is that this was probably the moment in time in English history where competing exam boards could have been abolished. So for anyone involved in education now, anyone involved in teaching, One of the slightly odd, unusual features of the English system is that you have all these different exam boards. And I can actually remember when I started teaching, an Irish colleague said to me, I find this exam board system you have so crazy because you have three, four, five different options of exam boards and you can choose which GCSE, who you want to do, uh, you know, your English GCSE with, who you want to do a math GCSE with. And my Irish colleague was saying to me, you know, in Ireland, the, the, the Department for Education would do all this <laughs> or it would be a, some kind of other institution that's a spin-off from the Department of Education. You wouldn't have this choice. And I suppose when you put it like that, I'd never sort of heard it put like that before. You're right. It does seem odd that we have all these different exam boards. And the thing people will often say, the critique of it, is that it, can it lead to dumbing down? Can it lead to a race to the bottom? 
are teachers and students always going to pick the easier option and examples will be incentivized to set easier options and yeah there's a part of you that thinks it would just be simpler to have one <laughs> maybe that would make it make it easier as I say, we've talked in previous episodes about how this comes about. It comes about because there isn't much state intervention in English education in its early days. And so when the state does come along and get involved, you've had all these non-state institutions pop up, lots of them led by the universities. So by 1911, as I say, you've got all these different university-based exam boards existing already. So one option this 1911 commission could have done is they could have just got rid of all these competing exam boards. And they could have said, let's just run it out of the, the, the what was then the Board of Education, which becomes, you know, the current, the modern sort of Department for Education. And they, they weigh it up and they consider it. And in their final report, they say, yes, there's advantages, but great as these advantages would be, we are convinced that they would be far outweighed by the dangers involved in any highly centralised control of English secondary education in its present phase. They don't want the centralisation. They want there still to be choice. Maybe there's an element of that 19th century laissez-faire attitude that, that, that they've got here. They, they want there to be some element of choice, some element of, of almost devolution to these university exam boards. So the free market remains? It's not really a free market because they aren't, they aren't for-profit bodies. And even nowadays, not all of them are for-profit bodies. They're basically universities at this point. And here's what they say. To impose upon the central authority at this juncture the complicated task of organising and conducting a system of examinations in every recognised secondary school in England would involve no inconsiderable risk of substituting a too mechanical uniformity of test for the freedom which the best schools may justly claim and which in some degree is permitted to them by the present arrangements. So they want to give schools choice, they want to give schools a bit of freedom. They also think there is a big risk as well of putting everything centrally which you could see that actually the Board of Education did it have the capacity at this point to, to manage this. So they don't centralise the examination system. They allow there to be different boards. What they do instead is recommend setting up a central council that will help coordinate and provide some kind of equivalence between all these boards. In 1917, this results in the creation of the Secondary School Examinations Council. That's essentially arises out of this 1911 commission. And the, se the Secondary School Examinations Council, their job is to coordinate what all these different boards are doing to attempt to provide some sense of equivalence. So there's a sense of quality control coming in there. Yes, absolutely. And this is the predecessor. The Secondary School Examinations Council doesn't exist now. It goes through lots of iterations and changes its name and mutates over time. But we still have some element of that left in our system up until a few years ago there was something called the qualification and curriculum development authority which was one sort of offshoot of the ssec the other offshoot which we do still have today is ofqual and ofqual essentially at the minute probably have some of the roles of this previous secondary school examinations council in that it's their job to try and say okay well we've got all these different exam boards all running an english gcse our job is to make sure that they are of equivalent difficulty so that's one of ofqual's jobs it's not not the only one and you can trace all this right back to this 1917 Secondary Schools Examination Council, which in itself you can trace back to this 1911 Government Commission, which has your brilliant Sophie Bryant on it. So that's that's kind of where all this comes from. So 1917, the Schools Secondary School Examination Council, and they run the first school certificate and higher certificate in 1918. The idea is that you're kind of, even though you've got these different boards still, they're all working towards this 16-year-old school certificate, 18-year-old higher certificate, and whichever board you do it with, 
you're going to get a certificate that's got equivalency. So the secondary schools council is coordinating everything. But who are the people who are actually setting these examinations? Are they all universities? Yes. Well, they yes, they are essentially, but they, they're university boards. So they're very similar to what we talked about in an exams episode. The, the first two that come along really Oxford and Cambridge. And then you have these other universities who set up similar schools for exams over the following decades. And at this point, these university boards become known as awarding bodies. And... I think probably one of the trends you can see over the sort of century or century and a half of school exam development in in England, and we'll talk about this more in the A-level episode, is that all of these school exams start in the university, but they gradually become more specialised and almost become an offshoot of the university. It starts with the regius professor of mathematics at wherever <laughs> decides he's going to write a maths paper. And then as things get bigger and more schools want to do it, and it becomes more of a a system you obviously need to specialize and professionalize a bit more and these awarding bodies they keep their links to the university but become almost separate departments and and separate organizations at, at some point by 1903 you've got Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, Leeds and Birmingham universities who are also involved in setting exams by 1918 which is when the first hire and the school certificate come in you have eight awarding bodies that are able to award these school certificates and higher school certificates. So this probably does simplify the system, does make it easier for, for schools and for students who are looking to you know, take these exams. There's now much more of a structured, unified system, but you still do have the room for the different awarding bodies eight awarding bodies, ones that are regional, ones that are attached to certain universities. I guess you could say the 1911 Commission, they've they've tried to get the best of both worlds. They want to retain a little bit of competition and choice, but they also want to try and provide a structure and some equivalence as well. And and that's that's what they want to try and do. And, And that's kind of the system we get and probably in some ways still have the legacy of that system with us. What would you say the big differences are then between the school certificate and the A-levels that follow it? I think the the A-level does offer you a bit more choice. It certainly does. You can pick and mix your subjects a bit more and you don't have to take everything through one exam board. So with the school certificate, you have to pick the exam board or the school will pick the exam board and you do everything with them. But with the A-level, you can choose different exam boards and you can choose different different types of exams and you're not sort of set on the choice that you pick and obviously also the big difference as well with the A-level if you if you just pass one or two A-levels you'll get credit for it It, with the school certificate if you fail one you 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 don't get the certificate and it's probably also the case with the A-level that perhaps each A-level is a a bit more in, in depth and it's it's probably only three whereas the school cert sometimes could be four so there is a difference between it uh, between the school certificate and the A-level but perhaps not not as much as as you might think at first glance. And what about the ongoing influence of the school certificate? So what's interesting is that, yeah, as I say, you can see some of the the ongoing influence. One of the things I've talked about, the different exam boards, I think that's probably in some ways the biggest legacy of that 1911 commission. The idea that you can have different exam boards, different awarding bodies offering the same exam and they will be certified as being equivalent. So we still have that. Um, in other ways, you could say it's it's maybe not had much of a much of an influence. The A level's really just taken over and is is very dominant. What is interesting is some countries 
still have assessment systems, exam systems that perhaps have some owe something to this setup. And in Ireland, Ireland have a junior certificate and a leaving certificate, which date back to the the foundation of the the Irish Republic. <laughs> Um, so, and I think you could look at those and say perhaps they have some similarities. Now, those systems have been for a lot of reform in the past decade or so, but certainly in the sense that they force you to take more subjects and don't give you as much choice, they probably have a, a little bit of similarities. So, if you if you wanted to look at how the higher certificate and the school certificate have operated, Ireland is probably the closest parallel in the modern world. And those who are fully behind the advanced British standard and perhaps might be with their rose-tinted glasses seeking a sort of nostalgia trip to the the great British past, would they think that this was a a sort of natural offspring of the school certificate? Do you you think the two are similar? So I think what's interesting is the school certificate, the higher certificate, they were around for, as I say, this 30-year period. They don't seem to have left an enormous, enormous cultural memory, I would say. And I think one of the things we'll talk about in the A-level episode is the A-level really does have a quite a strong cultural footprint. I think when people people know what the A-level is, it's got a history and it's got quite a decent reputation. The school certificate, I'm not sure, you know, it was never done by as many people as the, the A-level. It wasn't around for as long. So I'm not sure it necessarily has a, a wave of people with nostalgia sort of longing for the, for the day. <laughs> but it is interesting to look back at it. It probably does have some things in common with the proposals for the new advanced British standard. And I think where it might be worthwhile if people who are involved involved with thinking about it, it's interesting to think about the school certificate because I suspect that some of the problems of the school certificate and higher certificate might bedevil this new ABS. So one would obviously be to, to what extent do you get the standard if you fail one or two of the components? So the, the, the problem with all these wraparound baccalaureate style, certificate style assessments is do you have to tick off every single component to get the certificate? And some people would say, yes, you do. And that's the whole point of them, because we want students to have studied this breadth of subjects. And that's really important. But the flip side of that is, well, are you really going to fail a student who has passed five out of the six components brilliantly and just missed out on one? That's quite harsh. (laughs) Um, So I think that's kind of the challenge. Obviously, the International Baccalaureate, which has a lot of fans and is around today and is, is, is taken internationally, they have a points system. So that might seem a bit fairer, that you can add up your points and you get points out of 45. I think for the Advanced British Standard, that is going to be the big challenge, trying to work out how you grade and how you incentivise students to take all of the elements of it and take all the elements seriously without penalising them for a very minor failure in one of them. I think that will be a challenge. I think the other thing that we might be able to learn today from the school certificate is the challenges of equivalency. Now, I talked about how you still had eight awarding bodies awarding the school certificate, awarding the highest certificate, and the Secondary School Examination Council, their job was to try and make sure that those eight awarding bodies were doing something equivalent. We still have that problem in the system today. And that is a problem that Ofqual currently, that's their job to deal with. And it's not really something that a lot of other countries or many other countries just get around that by just having one awarding body. But I think a further issue, which they didn't have with the school cert, but which is another uh, another thing that you'll have to deal with is what are you going to do about equivalency 
between the vocational and the academic. And this is going to be a huge problem for the advanced British standard, which the old school certificate and the old high certificate didn't have to worry about. You could get a high certificate. There were certain combinations of subjects you could do, but they're all pretty much academic subjects. And the SSCC had to kind of, I guess, just make sure that they were all of a, a relevant standard. Once you start to bring in vocational subjects, suddenly then starts to get a lot trickier. Um, and if you're saying, well, anyone who gets an ABS will be able to go to university with it, you know, depending on the, the, the suite of qualifications they've done for that, for that ABS, actually, will universities accept it? Will universities say, yeah, I'm fine with there being this suite of, of vocational qualifications and I'm happy that those are of the same standard as the academic ones? I think that's going to be a, a big challenge because I think a big pitch for the ABS has been about parity of esteem between vocational and academic. But I, I think what history's shown is it's very hard to create parity of esteem by fiat to say that, well, um, a qualification in nursing is going to be exactly the same as a qualification in physics and they're going to have exactly the same number of points on a tariff and you should be able to do exactly the same thing with them. That's quite hard to do. So I think that's one of the things that this new advanced British standard is going to have to think about. And that'll be potentially where some of the tricky issues come in. So surely another big difference, and it's a a difference whenever we're talking about today compared with education in the past, is the sheer number and range of pupils taking these examinations. That is absolutely right. That the highest certificate was being taken by a tiny fraction of students. The aim of the advanced British standard is that it should really be the post-16 option for pretty much all students that it's going to encompass nearly all the things that you could do post 16 so that is an enormous challenge right back at the start I said people were worried with the highest certificate that it had to fulfill the three purposes of 18 year old school leaving something you could put on your CV (laughs) entrance to university and scholarship entry to university (laughs) they were worried that that was too many purposes to fulfill this is going to have to fulfill way more purposes it's going to have to fulfill the purposes of everyone you know, as, as I say, you know, n- nearly everyone post sixteen, the plan is that this would be what you would do, and that's a that's a big ask. So I think that will be the challenge, the challenge with it. And there's certainly things that you will be able to learn from the history of the school certificate and the high certificate, but there's things where this is trying to do something very different. Mm-hmm.